When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. A woman runs for her life through a forest. The air is choked with oily smoke and people screams. Ash singes her dress as her husband grabs her hand, urging her to run faster, trying to get ahead of the flames. As she picks up her feet, clutching her baby more tightly, she wonders how she got here. She, the daughter of a prominent Roman family, married at 17, already a mother, the picture of a good Roman wife. And yet with one unwise choice, and not even her own, she's become a fugitive in an exile. For Livia Drusilla, the future is looking pretty bleak. Little does she know that in a handful of years, her life is going to look very different. She will be married to Rome's very first emperor, carving out a whole new path of her own. In this episode, we're going to trace the paths of some of Rome's first imperial superstars, the wives, sisters, and daughters who rose with Octavian to become ancient Rome's first family, famous throughout the Roman world. Livia, Octavia, Julia, Messalina, both Agrippinas. In a time of great change, these women walked into the public spotlight and had to navigate both public love and hate in equal measure. They had access to power in ways that few women had before them, but to grasp it was a delicate and dangerous game. Who were the women behind the rumors and the legends? How much influence did they wield and what mark did they leave? Lucky for us, we have a time-traveling companion for our jaunt through the early days of the Roman Imperial period, someone who's much more of an expert than I am. I'm Dr. Rhiannon Evans, I'm the Associate Professor of Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University and I'm the, the main guest on the podcast Emperors of Rome. Grab your purple stola, a laurel wreath, a sharp quill, and an even sharper tongue. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Aliza, Leia, Phoebes, Anne, Sunday, Peta and Ben, and a few more. Kevin, Lana, Virginia, Helen, and Karen R. And my newest lady presidents, Ariana, Catherine, Alana, Nadia, Holly, Katie, Caroline A., Bailey, Morgan D., Rhonda, Lauren W., and Lauren S., and a few more for good measure. Madeline, Janae, Bethany, Lydia, and Ellie. And to the Imperators and Augustas who give me more each month than I ask for. Avery, Karen C., Jessica S., Dylan, and Jackie C. 
Becoming a patron really helps me keep the show going, and you'll get access to sneak peeks, discounts on merch, interviews, Q&As, and exclusive bonus episodes. I recently posted one on the history of sequins that I think will really add a little sparkle to your day. To find out more, head over to my website. While you can listen to this episode all on its own, I think you'd get more out of it if you listen to a few other episodes first. Specifically, my three-part series on a day in the life of a Roman woman will give you a lot of context about these women's everyday experiences. My three-part Domina series will introduce you to a lot of the political drama and power players we're about to spend time with, sometimes in greater detail than we'll get into here. And while you're at it, listen to my episodes on Cleopatra, much of whose story runs parallel to this one. And as always, trying to find the women of ancient Rome is a challenge. They're a flash in the pan, a bright light amid the long histories of the men around them. That means we're about to spend a lot of time with Octavian, later called Augustus, and he's a little bit of a spotlight hog. To understand and learn about women like Livia, we have to talk about him, but we'll try to shove him off stage as often as possible. How dare you! I'll have you know that I am incredibly interesting and important. Shh, honey, go to sleep. Speaking of, let's introduce Octavian properly. We've met him briefly in several of our episodes already. He's the young buck who joins with Mark Antony and Lepidus to form the second triumvirate, who defeats Fulvia in battle after writing rude poetry about her. He's the one who ultimately defeats Antony and Cleopatra, bringing an end to an independent Egypt. He is Rome's very first emperor, and perhaps its most successful. He stage manages his world as it morphs from republic to empire, setting a template for all emperors to follow. I must admit that as impressive as he is, I am not Augustus's biggest fan. So I'm gonna let his dating profile introduce him. Why, hello there. I may not be much of a warrior, but in all other respects, I am a king. Did I say king? I meant legend. I'm certainly as smart and as crafty as my adopted father, Julius Caesar. I'm great at public relations and debate. I also play a mean game of chess, and when I do, I play to win. My ideal female companion is, hmm, quiet, sweet, and obedient. I abhor scenes of drama. Push me too far with your feminine antics, and you might find yourself exiled on an island. And not the nice kind where they serve fruity drinks. Ugh, swipe left. So where did this guy actually come from? He's born in 63 BCE, just 20 miles outside of Rome, with the name Gaius Octavius. History calls him Octavius at this point, though his family just calls him Gaius. His father, also Gaius Octavius, comes from the Octavii clan. They're well-moneyed equestrians, but politically not all that distinguished. Dad's the first among them to make it to the Senate, and he looks pretty promising, until he dies when Gaius is only four. His mom, Attia, remarries, as a Roman matron is wont to do. A less impressive man named Lucius Martius Philippus. He's raised at least partially by his grandma, Julia Caesaris, who just so happens to be Julius Caesar's sister. He grows up with his six years older half-sister, Octavia. Remember her, as we'll be coming back for her shortly. It turns out that Gaius' stepdad is cautious and probably traveling nowhere politically. 
so he's definitely in the market for a male role model. Perhaps his great-uncle Julius might just fit the bill. But for now, Caesar's too busy to take much interest in young Octavius. And it's not like he shows any particular promise. He's often sick, thin, and frail, without any of the robust strength Romans are so fond of. And to top it off, something of a mama's boy. He seems smart enough, a good student with some skill at speech-making. And he's good at making friends that make up for his shortcomings. One of his school buddies is one Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. He's the bruiser on the playground, burly and brawny, and he'll prove a good bro to have in Octavius's corner. We'll be coming back for him, too. In 58 BCE, while a five-year-old Octavian is toddling around, playing with blocks or whatever, Livia Drusilla is born. Her family, the Claudii, are much more distinguished than Octavius's. They boast Aeneas as their ancestor. You know, that guy who created the whole Roman race back in the day, or so they say. The Claudians have always been heavy hitters on Rome's political scene. Their members have seen some 28 consulships and six triumphs. No slouches up in here. Remember that in Rome, lineage is everything. It defines who you know, how you're perceived, and how far you can go. And for women, it also defines your worth on the marriage market. When Livia comes of age, she's going to be considered an extremely good catch for the ambitious. She grows up on Rome's prestigious Palatine Hill, surrounded by the city's most bright and shining glitterati. From a young age, she learns her duties. Get married, don't do anything scandalous, have babies, preferably male, and teach them well. Speaking of duties, by 54 BCE, Octavia finds herself married off to a guy named Gaius Claudius Marcellus. He's pretty distinguished and goes on to serve as consul, but it turns out he's not the biggest fan of his wife's great-uncle Caesar. When he came crashing across the Rubicon to take Rome, Marcellus stood against him. They've kind of made up since then, but still don't exactly see eye to eye. Some say that in 54, great-uncle Julius tries to pressure Octavia to divorce him so that he can marry her off to Pompey. You'll remember him from previous episodes. That great general who forms part of the first triumvirate with Caesar and eventually has his head chopped off by Cleopatra's brother Ptolemy. He's just lost his wife, Julia, Caesar's only daughter, and Julius is keen to cut Marcellus out of the picture and tie Pompey back to the family tree. But Octavia pushes back, saying she doesn't want to divorce her husband. This causes some friction in the family. But it's also the first sign we have that Octavia is loyal, steadfast, and not the wilting flower history tends to paint her as. It certainly won't be the last. Young Octavius doesn't spend much time with great-uncle Julius until 47 BCE. All his life, Caesar's been a rising star. By this point, he's worked his way all the way up the political ladder, forming the first triumvirate, conquering Cisalpine Gaul and beyond, having a passionate affair with our friend Servilia, and marching his army right over the Rubicon River to claim Rome for his own. He's crushed his enemy Pompey and spent some time over in Egypt, knocking sparkly boots with our main gal Cleopatra. He's arrived home and been pronounced dictator, and Octavius is his closest male relative. Suddenly, Octavius is closer to power than he's ever been before. He goes to Caesar and asks him for a favor. Would he free his buddy Agrippa's brother, even though he fought in the war in North Africa against him? Caesar says no problem. Octavius earns a rep for loyalty, Agrippa's best friends forever bracelet, and Julius's respect in the bargain. 
And so, when he marches off to war some more over in Spain, he asks Octavius to come with him. Unfortunately, he always seems to be coming down with something right before the fighting gets going. (coughs) I seem to have a terrible headache. No war for me today. This will happen a lot in his career, earning him a reputation for cowardice. Is it stress, self-preservation, or just a really compromised immune system? It's hard to say. When he's well enough, he and Agrippa head out by sea, determined to get in on the action. They're shipwrecked on the way and have to cross through enemy territory to reach Caesar. When they get there, it's all done and dusted, but Julius is touched, and it gives Octavius a chance to spend time with him at close quarters. They hang out in Julius's tent, and when they head back to Rome, they spend most of the travel time together. We don't know what they discuss, but given how things turn out, Octavius clearly makes an impression. But when they get to Gaul, Octavius gets booted from his place with the arrival of Mark Antony. Hey, yo, what up? Hey, move over, you little wiry bitch. I call shotgun. Hey, someone... Oh, wait, that was me. I farted. Sorry, my B. My B. Ah, Mark. How I've missed you. Mark isn't pleased to see this gangly youth in his spot, and Octavius can't be overly pleased either. Cue a rivalry that will continue for many years to come. When they get back to Rome, Caesar rewrites his will. When he dies, three-fourths of his property will go to the young Octavius. He also posthumously adopts the boy as his son, making him head of the family and the heir to his title and name. Side note, the will stipulates that second in line for that honor is Marcus Brutus, son of his lover Servilia, the boy he loves like a son and who will eventually murder him. To prep Octavius for his future life, Caesar starts to groom him, serving as a sort of assistant. He also sends him to Apollonia to learn oratory and swordplay. Heyo! When he invades Parthia, Octavius will finally see battle beside his great uncle. His future is definitely looking bright. But then, in 44 BCE, the news comes. Julius Caesar is dead, stabbed by men of the Senate. It sends shockwaves through Rome and well beyond. What happens now? His mom writes Octavius a frantic note saying to come home, but distance himself from the whole situation. His teachers tell him to command the legions in Apollonia and take Rome by force. He chooses to do neither, taking his closest friends toward Rome to see what's happening. Before he can get there, though, Mark Antony, all by himself and with no coaching at all from his wife Fulvia, if you say so, gives a big speech over Caesar's body, whipping the people up into a frenzy and lying about what's in Caesar's will. But when Octavius gets there, he finds out what he didn't know before, that Caesar has left him almost everything, including his new adoptive title, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. His mom can wring her hands all she likes, but Octavius is fully in the spotlight now. Some people, including mom, advise him not to take it. These are troubled and difficult waters for an 18-year-old to swim in. But he's like, Please, don't let these sticky-outy ears fool you. I was born for this moment. And so, even though an extremely jealous Mark Antony tries to withhold his inheritance and stall the adoption, Octavius becomes Gaius Julius Caesar, or, as we like to call him at this point, Octavian. And this teenage hopeful is ready and willing to avenge his adopted father's death. 
Meanwhile, that same year, 44 BCE, Livia gets married, though not to Octavian. She is 15 or 16, and Prince Charming is some 20 years older. Oh well, it could be worse. Ah, Rome. Given the situation for patrician women, it's likely this isn't a love match, but a family alliance. Remember that, as a woman, Livia is under the total authority of her paterfamilias. Her dad gets to make all the decisions for her. As Dr. Evans explains it, The paterfamilias is really, it's, he's almost a god in the household. Something that I tell my students often is that Rome is the most patriarchal society I can think of, not because it's the most heavy-handed against women, but because patriarchal literally means the rule of the father. And for the Romans, the father was the leading figure in any household. Though in earlier times, manus marriages were more common. This is where we see power over a woman pass from dad to new husband. By this period, they're pretty rare. Families like the Claudii want to keep family property and wealth intact, which means not letting family members become part of other families, at least legally speaking. So he's likely the one who strikes the deal. And for a young girl in a society where marriages are political currency, she must know it's entirely likely that she'll be married more than once. How does Livia feel about it? Well, her suitor, Tiberius Claudius Nero, comes from another, not quite as distinguished branch of the Claudii clan, but on paper he's fairly promising. As Cicero says, he's a nobly born, talented and self-controlling young man. And he's done a good job working up the political ladder. He even led Caesar's fleet during the Alexandrian War. You know, that time in 49 BCE when Julius and Cleopatra were holed up in her palace being shouted at by mobs and starved out by Cleo's Alexandrian rivals. She has every reason to expect a prosperous union. Of course, her first duty will be to have a son with her new husband. She's young, so there's every chance she'll be able to. A Roman medical man named Sorinus will write in the first century AD, One must judge the majority from the ages of 15 to 40 to be fit for conception. If they are not mannish, compact, and oversturdy, or too flabby and very moist. Okay. And anyway, sex is good for us. As Hippocrates said in the 4th century BCE, women who don't get married young and try for babies are more likely to suffer from visions and, sometimes, may even choke to death. But what if she can't conceive? Imagine, if you will, growing up in a society where you're defined almost solely on whether you can make babies, particularly male ones. For a young Roman bride, there's a lot of pressure here. And knowing how many women die in childbirth in ancient Rome, there must be a healthy dose of fear as well. Even so, it isn't long before Livia gives birth to her first son, Tiberius. She's living on the Palatine Hill, which is the place to be in Rome if you're an influential mover and shaker. Cicero lives here, as does Mark Antony, as does Octavian. And amid this airy crowd, there will be a lot of pressure about how to raise her child the right way. There seem to have been a fair number of wet nurses for the rich and influential, but also a certain amount of judgment of those women who don't nurse their own kids. As the conservative philosopher Favorinus will tell us, what sort of half-baked, unnatural kind of mother bears a child and then send it away? Or do you think that women have nipples for decoration and not for feeding their babies? Step off, Favorinus. A biographer writing years down the line will say that apparently Livia brings in a wet nurse, his judgy implication being that maybe, if Livia had nursed her son Tiberius, he wouldn't have turned out to be such a sucky emperor. What can I say? 
This is what historians do with powerful women. Haters gonna hate. Ah, well. What we can be sure of is that Livia takes pride in her son and wants to do as well as she can by him. Livia's just your average wealthy matron at this point, having babies and trying to keep them alive and running her household to the best of her ability. But soon enough, she'll find herself one of Rome's leading ladies. But before we get into that, there's a podcast I want to introduce you to, produced by none other than our friend Livia. Or rather, the person who's bringing her to life. Need to satisfy a hungry mind? Every week, Your Brain on Facts brings you science. Why does mint feel cold? History. King Charles II of Spain was so inbred, his family didn't bother educating him. Music. Many hit songs and even entire albums were written for revenge. Technology. The first video game was made on an oscilloscope in 1958. And every other topic under the sun. Look for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. In the wake of Julius Caesar's death, things in Rome are shaky, to put it mildly. No one's totally sure what will happen and who is running the show. In 43 BCE, after some skirmishes and heated exchanges that have everyone on edge, the Second Triumvirate comes together at last, an alliance made up of Octavian, Mark Antony, and a guy named Lepidus. We talked about this in our episodes about Fulvia and Cleopatra. This power threesome essentially comes together with one main aim, to annihilate Julius Caesar's murderers. And so, Livia's husband finds himself in the same boat as every other Roman citizen, having to pick sides between the men who killed Caesar to save the Republic and the men who have vowed to avenge their commander's death. This is a battle not just for power, but for the Republic and its future. Choose the wrong side and it could bring shame or even death. For whatever reason, Tiberius Nero chooses to throw in his lot with Cassius, Brutus, and the other assassins. Livia's dad does the same. That makes them enemies of Mark Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian. They've allied with the losing side, though they don't know it yet. Does Livia back this plan, or does she just go along with it? How much sway or involvement might she have? Roman women can't vote or serve in government, but we know they have an avid interest in it. They rally around political candidates, particularly family members, scrawling political graffiti on walls. In 42, right around this time, a woman named Hortensia delivers a speech protesting a proposed tax from the Second Triumvirate, which targets wealthy women, meant to help pay for their civil war against the assassins. We've mentioned this speech before, but it's worth quoting again. Why should we pay taxes when we have no part in the honors, the commands, or the statecraft for which you contend against each other with such harmful results? Great questions, Hortensia. Her speech hits its mark, and the number of women subjected to the tax is lowered. But such a thing is an exception, not the rule when it comes to a woman's power in the public arena. The Roman ideal for a matron is to be loyal, loving, and subservient, to know her place and to stay firmly in it. Livia must know this. What can she do but go along? At this point, it pays to reintroduce our friend Fulvia, Mark Antony's ambitious wife. It's around now that, to drum up some badly needed cash for their cause, the Second Triumvirate starts a series of bloody prescriptions. This is where Roman citizens are put onto naughty and nice lists. If you're one of the 2,500 to find yourself on the former, you'll likely have your head removed and hung up on the rostra. 
The second triumvirate will take everything you own. Livia has to see this happening. Do she and her husband hide in their basement every time the Reapers come knocking? Do they spend every night wondering if it's their last? Through it all, Fulvia is a powerful and influential figure. She refuses to help Hortensia when she comes to ask for her favor in fighting the tax law, and she uses the prescriptions as a means of getting rid of her enemies. Bye, Cicero. She is a very visible actor in a way that women aren't supposed to be. Livia must be aware of the vitriol the woman's actions are inspiring. What does she make of it? Well, I'm learning a lot of lessons about how to get men not to hate me, so I suppose that's good. In 42, Octavian and Antony join together to defeat Julius's murderers at the Battle of Philippi. Brutus's ashes get sent back to Rome to his mom, Servilia, which is sad for her. Another sad thing, Livia's father dies. Once he realizes his side is beaten at the battle, he does that thing so many Roman men think is noble and commits suicide in his tent. It's exactly what Mark Antony will attempt to do 12 years from now over in Egypt. But right now, he and Octavian are at the top of their game. We can imagine that Livia is upset. Her father, killed not by some foreign enemy, but fellow Romans. An ominous sign, if ever there was one. But with the death of her paterfamilias, Livia becomes sui juris, independent in the eyes of the law. According to Dr. Evans, If the paterfamilias, who might well be their father, dies, they might possibly be under their own law, as it's called, sui juris. So they might not be under the authority of their husband or their husband's father or the man in that family. She could leave Tiberius Nero if she wanted and join whatever side most suits her. But instead, she takes the more socially approved route of sticking by her man. Maybe it's because she loves him. Or maybe it's because Roman women are lauded for following their husbands, regardless of where the political winds might take him. So, the assassins are dead. The question is, what happens now? Rome is pretty much fully under the control of just three men. The Senate's still around, but they're not really running the show. That's not a republic, is it? Relations between the triumvirs aren't looking much more solid. After Philippi, things are tense between Octavian and Mark Antony. They are the ultimate frenemies, and Rome is about to suffer years of these two throwing mud at each other in an increasingly violent way. So they do what all great Roman men do when they're at odds, offer their female family members as bargaining chips. To that end, Octavian agrees to marry Clodia Polcra, Mark Antony's stepdaughter, whose mom is none other than our old friend Fulvia. This is also the year that Julius Caesar is declared an actual god by the Senate, the first Roman citizen to be deified after his death, calling him Deo Invicto, or the Unconquered God. This gets Octavian to thinking. If his adopted dad's a god, then isn't he Divi Filius, or son of a god? And doesn't that mean he's meant to rule? The seeds of that whole divine right to rule idea are firmly planted. But Rome's not run by anyone solely, at least not yet. In 41, Livia's main man, Tiberius Nero, decides things are getting a little too hot in Rome. So he smuggles Livia and the baby over to Perugia in central Italy. Who should they run into there but Fulvia? Girl who's been busy. By this point, Antony and Octavian are back at odds again. Mark is off having a steamy affair in the east with Cleopatra. Octavian has insulted Mark and Fulvia both by sending back her daughter Clodia. 
saying that he's gonna divorce her. Sorry, but not really. The marriage was never consummated. So was it really ever a marriage? I don't think so. Fulvia and Antony's brother Lucius get busy fomenting rebellion against Octavian, raising troops in Antony's name. Fulvia has now made herself notorious for pushing her way into men's business. In her open pursuit of power and influence, she breaks every one of Rome's rules about a woman's place. What impression does she make on the young and vulnerable Livia? Is she impressed by what Fulvia is trying to do in her husband's name, or is she horrified? At the very least, she has a front-row seat for the Perusine War she wages against Octavian. Her so-called unwomanly behavior reflects badly on her husband, becoming something that his enemies can use against him. And when Fulvia's troops lose the fight, she sees Mark Antony essentially abandon his wife, washing his hands of her. Livia finds out firsthand what happens to a Roman woman who tries to take what is seen as a man's prize. Perhaps she even vows that she won't make the same mistakes. When Octavian, by which I really mean Agrippa, attacks Fulvia's camp in 40 BCE, they're forced to flee in a chaotic retreat, and Livia and her husband are caught up in the madness. They spend the rest of the year moving from place to place, looking for someone to protect them. Eventually, they end up in Greece around Sparta, where the Claudian family has some sway. Fulvia dies in Greece after being yelled at and abandoned by Mark Antony, the man whose interests she fought so hard to protect. Meanwhile, Octavian and Mark are in the kind of awkward situation that can only be achieved when one guy's wife raises troops and tries to overthrow the other. How to bury the hatchet on that whole Perusine war thing? Through marriage, of course. Again. Octavian's sister Octavia just so happens to be freshly widowed. No matter that she served less than the socially acceptable ten months of mourning, little bro's got political needs, and she's the only one who can achieve them. At the Treaty of Brundisium in October that year, Mark Antony agrees to marry Octavia. How does she feel about it? We have no idea. It's hard to find the real Octavia behind the headlines of history. She is lauded as the angelic, sweet, and biddable wife of her era, held up as a paragon of female virtue. As Plutarch tells us, They hoped that Octavia, who besides her great beauty had intelligence and dignity, when united to Antony and beloved by him, would restore harmony and be their complete salvation. Everyone knows about his affair with Cleopatra, and many in Rome are made uneasy by it. Maybe marrying him to a proper Roman matron will be the making of him. If Octavia's many stellar qualities aren't enough to tempt the wild Mark Antony into better behavior, then maybe no one can. She has to know she's entering a complex political situation. But I imagine that she also feels happy that she gets to play an important part in cementing their alliance, becoming the glue that holds their agreement together. Octavia is often portrayed as a passive pawn and a frigid wet blanket, but I think she has more fire in her than history allows for. At this moment, she also clearly makes an impact on her new and headstrong husband. Not long after their wedding, Antony commissioned some coins with himself and his wife both on them. It's meant to show unity between the western and eastern halves of the Roman territories. Antony and Octavian, bros for life. But it also makes Octavia one of the first recognizable Roman matrons to show up on a coin while still living. There have been women on coins before, of course, in the eastern provinces, but never ones officially issued by the Roman state. The Senate would have sanctioned their making. Imagine if the American government decided to start printing Michelle Obama on $5 bills in 2020, visibly tying her with American currency and identity. 
I'm into it. But in this time period, it's an even bigger deal. In an era before the internet, coins are an important visual icon, a forceful symbol of status. This is new. They swiftly have two children together, two daughters named Antonia Major and Antonia Minor. She dutifully raises them alongside Mark's other two kids with Fulvia and her own three children from her first marriage. That's seven children she's raising, in case you weren't counting. And for a time, it seems like she really is making a better man of Mark Antony. Augustus also gets married in 40 BCE, for political advantage, of course. He chooses Scribonia, who is related to a guy named Sextus Pompeius. As you'll remember from previous episodes, the original Pompey was part of Julius Caesar's first triumvirate and a very successful general, until the Ptolemies over in Egypt chopped off his head. This Pompey, Sextus, is his son, and definitely not a friend of Antony and Octavian. And he's been causing a lot of trouble, fighting and blocking grain supplies from traveling into the city. So Octavian marries her to try and smooth relations, and before long she's pregnant. Things are looking calmer than they have in a while. But as Antony and Octavia sail off to the east, leaving young Octavian to try and rule a frazzled Rome, he yearns to cement himself more fully with the elite of his city. Caesar's name won't keep him on top forever, and one of the best ways of making alliances is through marriage. And so, though he's already married to Scribonia, those shrewd, ambitious eyes start to wander. So, where is Livia in all this? As part of the peace deal Antony and Octavian struck with Sextus, all the exiled families who backed him are given clemency, and also the chance of finally returning home. 19-year-old Livia and her husband are part of that move. But as punishment for going against them, Livia's husband only gets back about a quarter of his wealth and assets. Her husband's career in politics is essentially over. This is where Livia and Octavian's paths intertwine. By the end of 39, Octavian has made a decision about his love life. Scribonia, honey, I think it's time we threw in the towel here. It's not you, darling. It's me. Well, no, it's, it is you, but no hard feelings, okay? He does this, by the way, just hours after she gives birth to his first child, Julia. Classy. Then he adds insult to injury by inviting a freshly divorced, pregnant Roman matron to move in with him. That woman is none other than our Livia. All right, come on now, hear me out. How and why does this even happen? How do the two meet? What would compel them both to leave their spouses for each other? We don't know, exactly, so we can only guess. Octavian will go on to say that he divorces Scribonia because he can't stand her constant nagging. As Suetonius puts it, he is unable to put up with her shrewish disposition. Ugh, Octavian. Other sources will say that he falls in love with Livia at first sight. Maybe he sees Livia at some dinner party and is like, Hot damn, I gotta get me some of that. And Livia gives him a gaze that says, Hey, handsome. Cassius Dio tells us that Octavian is so enamored of Livia that he starts shaving off his beard for her. Suetonius also gives us this little gem about Augustus's beauty regimen he used to singe his legs with red-hot nutshells to make the hair grow softer. Tacitus, a critic of Octavian's and writing way after the fact, paints a different picture. He says that Octavian is tempted by Livia's beauty and that he actively steals her away from her husband Tiberius. 
There's a story from this period, taken from a letter that Antony writes Octavian, in which he insinuates that his rival seduced someone's wife in the middle of a dinner party, returning her to the table with pink cheeks and some serious bed hair. He doesn't say that woman is Livia, but it might as well have been. A lady never tells. Other sources make it out like Tiberius Nero is totally in on this whole thing. They say he even gives his ex-wife away at their wedding. Of course, none of them say anything about Livia's motives and whether she wants this marriage, too. I would kill for Livia's super-secret diary on this whole situation, but we just don't know what's going on in her head. Given that her father is dead and she's legally emancipated, though, we can imagine that no one is cooking this marriage up for her. It seems likely that it's love for both of them, at least in part. No matter what Livia's motives might be, this is a risk. At this point, Octavian is not a universally loved figure, and Mark Antony is still powerful. What happens if Octavian doesn't win the war for Rome? She might just be in exile once again. Plus, the whole thing is just a little bit scandalous, because when they get together, Livia is big and pregnant. There were rumors that it might be Augustus's child. There was almost certainly adultery before they were married. There was a kind of tradition that after divorce, a woman would wait a year before remarrying. And it was instant. She divorced her first husband, Tiberius, and then married Augustus or Octavian pretty much the day after. On January 14th, 38 BCE, Livia gives birth to her second son, Drusus. And then, just three days later, she marries Octavian. Now that's going to cause a commotion. So why does this happen the way it does? We don't know for sure. But one thing is certain, Livia's family lineage is something Octavian covets. The Claudii's are much more illustrious than his own family, despite their connection to Julius Caesar. And Octavian is a political animal. Love certainly isn't the only thing on his mind. Despite the drama-drama, newlywed life is pretty good. Livia might not have her two sons with her. By Roman law, they have to live with her ex-husband. But she does have plenty of money. And as a sui juris, she manages her own financial affairs. Bala! She's also the owner of several pieces of valuable property. And when her husband dies in 32, she will get full custody of her sons, and Octavian will become their official guardian. Otherwise, we don't know a whole lot about what these years are like for Livia. Her sister-in-law Octavia, though, is making some big waves on the public stage. By 37, the year after Octavian's marriage to Livia, he and Antony are once again not really loving on each other. Tensions between them are running very high. Octavia, pregnant with her second child by Mark, helps broker a peace between them by pulling a classic Sabine woman move. Please don't fight. I can't choose between my brother and my husband, so you'll just have to reconcile and hug it out. She's hugely responsible for the Treaty of Tarentum, which renews the Second Triumvirate for another five years. For her role, she's called, as Plutarch puts it, a wonder of a woman. Mark Antony puts her face on more coins, portraying them as a happy and successful couple. That isn't going to be the case for long. From here, the boys part ways. Octavian goes to defeat that guy Sextus Pompeius, who has poked up his head to cause some trouble. But, as we know, Octavian isn't all that into warring. <coughs> I've, uh, I've got an earache. I, I'm gonna have to sit this one out. 
Luckily, his best bro, Marcus Agrippa, is more than happy to ride in and score some victories for him. This military dynamo and all-around sexpot takes Octavian's fleet in hand and defeats Exus. Why, hello, dashing. Meanwhile, Mark Antony is suffering some real highs and lows over in the East. While Octavia is raising his kids back home, he has a hot and heavy reunion with his old flame, Cleopatra. They haven't seen each other for a few years, but their connection is stronger than ever. This pharaoh queen gladly gives him money and troops so he can go and finally defeat those pesky Parthians. She even introduces him to his twins while she's at it. No matter that his wife is one of Rome's most popular matrons and his fellow triumvir sister, he's like, Hold up, hold up. Octavia who? We don't know how Octavia feels about her husband's wanderings with a foreign queen, but if I had to guess, I'd say, not great. It's one thing for your powerful Roman husband to have affairs in private, but in public where everyone can see him and with an Egyptian royal. It can't feel good to know that your husband is not only in bed with another woman, but also in love with her. And she has to know that his growingly stubborn attachment is endangering his reputation in Rome, and thus hers as well. She could stay home and lie low, letting the chips fall as they may, but she doesn't. Instead, in the summer of 35, she goes to Athens, gathers up some troops, supplies, and money, and sails out to meet him. This is not a wilting flower. Plutarch tells us that she's annoyed when she arrives in Athens to find letters from Antony, commanding her not to come any further, but she swallows it. But her approach still has a profound effect on Cleopatra. Plutarch imagines her being upset by the idea of, as he puts it, Octavia coming to take her on in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Cleo clearly sees Octavia as a threat, and with good reason. For Octavia's part, she might just see this as her last chance to win her husband back, to show him what they could be together, publicly and privately, to save her family from being ripped apart by the strife. But in the end, she's forced to turn back and go home, when her brother Octavian, in all his self-righteous outrage, demands that she pack up the kids and move out of Antony's house, she refuses. He might not want her, but that doesn't mean she can't stay true to the vow she made, standing by her wild and wayward man. But without meaning to, her steadfastness in the face of such effrontery makes Mark Antony look pretty terrible. As Plutarch puts it, her behavior ends up hurting Antony without meaning to because he became hated for wronging a woman of such fine quality. Octavian might well be mad about his sister's treatment, but in some ways, Mark Antony is playing right into his hands. While Mark is off cavorting with Cleo, he gets busy creating an image of himself as just the right kind of man to lead Rome back to greatness. It's a classic politician PR move to promote himself as a model husband and brother, someone who can be loved and trusted. The women in his life are a huge part of that image-making. He wants people to see them as modern-day Cornelias, loyal and brave and devoted to their family. And so he heaps them with honors women in Rome have never seen before. In 35, he gives them a protection called sacrosanctitas, something that only male politicians are usually given. No one is allowed to publicly insult them, for one. They don't need male guardians to travel around, either. While Vestal Virgins have this power, too, no other woman has ever been granted it. That means they can manage their own money and affairs without any male tutela or guardian. She could conduct business under her own name. You know, she had, and the Romans are obsessed with legal business. They're obsessed with wills. She could do all of that and buy and sell. 
Andy starts putting statues of them up all over town. This is a big deal, as Roman statesmen have long objected to statues of women in public places. Women aren't meant to be honored in such a public way. The only real-life woman who's ever had her likeness put up in the city is our friend Cornelia, although that was mostly about honoring her famous sons, the Gracchi brothers. Putting up statues of women, particularly while still living, is a potent statement that speaks to Livia and Octavia's power. But it also puts them in the public eye, turning them into a new sort of celebrity, offering them up for public scrutiny. Putting up statues of wives and sisters is something Eastern kings do, and we all know how Romans feel about them. In this, Octavian has to move very carefully. He's not pulling a hatshepsut and throwing up images of his ladies with impunity. That would offend the traditionalists he's trying so hard to win over. So he makes sure these statues portray them as chaste, respectable matrons, a part of Octavian's image as the man who will bring Rome back to its golden age. Meanwhile, Mark Antony is doing the same type of thing, but in a totally different direction. He mints coins as well, but with Cleopatra on them. He's staging a triumph in Alexandria, gifting Roman-held lands to Cleo and his kids. Octavian and Antony write increasingly heated essays to and about each other during this period, insulting each other for all the world to see. In some of these, Mark Antony calls Octavian's faithfulness to Livia into question, saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, Hold up. You gonna get mad about me sleeping with Cleopatra? Really? I'll bet by the time this letter gets to you, you'll have slept with Tertullia, or Tarantilla, or Rufilla, or Salvia Titsenia. Hell, probably all of them. You nasty. He reminds Octavian of times when his friends lined up a bunch of ladies for his inspection, stripping them naked so he could decide which one he liked best. In some, he says, Bruh, do you even care who you stick it in? Is this just political mudslinging, or is Octavian actually unfaithful? It seems, from other sources, that it's likely the case. Octavian supporters, like Suetonius, say that sure, he sleeps with other women, but never out of anything so base as lust. He sleeps with other men's wives and daughters to get important information and secrets out of them that will help move his career forward, so that makes it fine. In 32, things reach a breaking point between Antony and Octavian. Antony burns a major bridge when he officially divorces Octavia. Not even in person, mind you. He just sends some troops back to Rome to let her know. Look, girl, you cute and all, but I think we know this marriage is struggling. So how about you let my guys pack up your stuff, we move you out of my house. How does Octavia feel about it? She doesn't write anything down for us to ponder, but how would you feel if your husband broke up with you by text, sent while lounging in bed with his Egyptian girlfriend? Not great, I'm thinking. Outraged, Octavian pries Antony's will out of the hands of the Vestal Virgins and reads its contents out to the Senate. We talked about this in our Cleo episodes. How Mark leaves much of what he owns to Cleopatra and their children, and even says he wants to be buried in Egypt. The whole thing shocks and horrifies the Senate. This reading of another man's will is illegal, by the way, but nobody cares, which is what crafty Octavian was counting on. It lets him do what he's long wanted. He gets to declare war on Mark Antony by declaring it on his Egyptian lady lover. How does Octavia feel about this? We don't know, because being a good Roman matron, she doesn't say a word. At least not any that have come down to us through the years. Fast forward to 31 BCE and the Battle of Actium, when Octavian's main man Agrippa beats Cleo and Mark Antony in battle. 
Cleopatra famously flees, and Mark Antony follows her. Months later, Octavian arrives in Alexandria. Mark Antony kills himself, and Octavian holds Cleo under house arrest. Eventually, she, too, commits suicide rather than be taken as a prisoner. It's 30 BCE, and Octavian is now truly the last Roman man standing. It isn't clear what he'll be to Rome now that he's conquered, but he's going to ride back into the city triumphant. How must Livia feel in this moment? Nervous, unsure, maybe even excited. Because unlike her male relatives before her, she has finally picked the winning side. We'll leave our Augustan ladies there for now. Next time, we'll find out what happens when Octavian returns to Rome and the Republic starts steering its way toward empire. We'll see what role his ladies play in his rise and what kind of power and influence they wield. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the Explorers, consider becoming a patron. You'll help keep the show alive and get access to exclusive content, from bonus episodes to sneak peeks and discounts on merchandise. For a transcript of this episode, plus lots of images and a list of my sources, check out my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explorers Podcast and Twitter at The Explorers Pod. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Damiano Baldoni and Michael Levy, and you'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks to Mr. Explores for my theme music logo and his help producing this episode. And thanks to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Moxie Labouche from Your Brain on Facts as the enchanting Livia. Stephen Reichel as the uptight Octavian. Crowd favorite Andrew Yergold as the incorrigible Mark Antony. Sean from Stories of Your and Yours podcast as Plutarch. Paul Gablonski as Suetonius. And my brother John as assorted sassy Roman men. I have no idea whether those are real people, so uh, I'll try not to slur the last one. Salvia Titsenia. That seems made up. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.